Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of Murdoch's sixth and perhaps underrated novel, An Unofficial Rose. We'll be debating its place in her canon, the critical reception on publication, artwork, horticulture, power games, and I'm sure much else besides. Joining me are Dr. Francis White and Lucy Alton, both from the Iris Murdoch Research Centre here at Chichester. Hello to you both. Hello, Miles. Hello, Miles. It's lovely to have you on, colleagues and friends too. Francis is very well known to listeners from multiple appearances on the podcast discussing, I think this is all of them, Ireland, The Bell, Childhood Reading, Under the Net, Religion. And I'm sure we've covered other topics as well on those podcasts. And she's currently working on her forthcoming monograph on Murdoch and Remorse, uh, which we look forward to in the near-ish future. And of course, she is the author of the award-winning um, Becoming Iris Murdoch. Lucy is coming towards the end of her PhD here entitled Wild Iris, Iris Murdoch's Environmental Imagination. And she's also recently published work in The Wonderful Murdochian Mind, which came out earlier this year. And she's also published in Iris Murdoch and the Ethical Imagination, Legacies and Innovations, uh, with a paper entitled Loving by Instinct, Environmental Ethics in Iris Murdoch's Sovereignty of Good and Nuns and Soldiers. She, like Francis, was on our very first podcast on Under the Net. And she's also appeared on the Murdoch and Swimming podcast. Um, as I said, great to have you both here. Francis, let's start with you. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, about the plot and also a little bit about um, critical reception in the 60s when it came out? That's always interesting, isn't it? Certainly, Miles. When you suggested that we talk about this because of the 60 years anniversary, mm. I realised I hadn't read it for about two decades. And going back to it is very exciting. And it's a much, much richer novel than I'd actually remembered. And it's interesting that what I do remember is the roses and the rose gardens, which Lucy will go on to later. So I wanted to look first at the circumstances in which Murdoch was writing this, her sixth novel. In 1960, just two years earlier, John Bailey had published The Characters of Love. And this critical book had chapters on Chaucer, Shakespeare and Henry James, particularly The Golden Bowl. Some of what I say is speculation, but I'm pretty sure that he and Iris would have discussed these writers. In an interview with The Guardian on the 1st of February, 1960, Murdoch spoke about The Golden Bowl and her admiration for Henry James. And James's plots, and the cadence of his prose were very present to her in these years. Now, she made 79 pages of notes for an unofficial rose and then began the first full draft on the 14th of November 1960 and completed the final draft on the 16th of July 1961, just eight months later. It's pretty fast going for a mm, novel is, yeah. of this size. Yeah. It comprised 449 handwritten pages. But this was also a turbulent period in her personal life. Having been reappointed on the 2nd of November 1960 as a tutor at St Anne's for a further seven years, on the 21st of December 1962, just two years later, she resigns her post, unable to continue, because of the very unhappy affair she had with her Australian colleague, Ma Margaret Hubbard, about which she wrote with distress in her journal. So the emotional turmoil which her characters go through was something which Murdoch knew from painful personal experience. An Unofficial Rose was published on the 6th of June 1962 and notwithstanding the distress was dedicated to Margaret Hubbard. And there's an interesting aside here, all these details are from Valerie Purton's chronology, that at Christmas that year, John's mother, her mother-in-law, asked Iris about the links between her son, Michael, John's brother, and Felix Meacham. 
and Iris was deeply distressed by what she saw as a simplistic confusion of life and fiction. But despite this emotional background to the writing of it, this is a cool book in many ways. Peter Conradi calls it somewhat chill, written from a distance narratorial perspective through the consciousness of a variety of characters, chiefly Hugh, Mildred, Anne, Randall and Penn. And again, this is speculation, but I think this comes both from the influence of Henry James being read at the time, but also perhaps from a need to keep a detached writing style at a time of personal turmoil. In a letter to Nora Smallwood, her editor, on the 20th of October, 1962, Murdoch called it a public object in the traditional sense. And she was distinguishing from the preceding a severed head and the following, the unicorn, of which she said, maybe they are just quite private things. And another interesting thing was that she commented to Rodie Cochrane years later in 1985 in a letter, that she was interested that he regards an accidental man as a turning point in her work, because she would rather say an unofficial rose. And I'd love to know why she thought that was the case. I don't know what she was thinking about then. But one of the things that struck me when Miles asked me to look at this book again was how much it gives us the opportunity to look at 60 years of Murdoch's critical reception from the mm. earliest writing until the current day. It highlights radical changes in Murdoch's scholarship and understanding of what she was trying to do into the 21st century. Anne Rowe, who has written some of the best 21st century criticism of Murdoch, has said that she's more suitable for the 21st century, or she resounds more in the 21st century than in her own in many ways. She was ahead of her time. She, there was very much that was prescient. And I'll return to this later. But first, I want to just look about the clues that Murdoch herself gives us about what she's doing in an unofficial rose. Because she does actually pepper the book with references that suggest how we should be trying to read it or what we should be thinking about at the time. And one of these themes is the English Tea Party. Penn, the Australian cousin who is staying with the family, finds in his room a few Penguin novels, but they look like dull English Tea Party stuff. And she's foregrounding this as an image of the kind of novel that this might be. And tea and taking tea recurs and recurs and recurs in many amusing and patterned ways throughout the book. But she's also very clearly referencing Henry James and Jane Austen. Now, this is noted by critics as they say things like this is a very Jamesian book or Austen is an influence here. But they don't actually, on the whole, look at what she's doing with James and Austen, who are very important, I think, behind this book. So, as I've said, she was reading Henry James at the time and John Bailey was writing on him. And James's concerns in many of his novels are about money and marriage, about deception and corruption, and about exploitation of the innocent. And likewise, behind Jane Austen, you have this question of economy, of marriage, the economics. There's a wonderful poem by W.H. Auden in which he says, it makes me most uncomfortable to see an English spinster of the middle class describe the amorous effects of brass reveal so frankly and with such sobriety the economic basis of society. And in this book, you've got money <laughs> very, very clearly and mm. marriage and affairs and what's happening here and moral dilemmas around these things. 
And Murdoch was very clear that she wanted to think that something of the spirit of Jane Austen had entered into her work. And she was also clear about Austen's idea that three or four families in a country village is the very thing to work on. And this brings me back to the early criticism by, I'm thinking of people like A.S. Byatt and Peter Conradi, who of course did groundbreaking work on Murdoch at the beginning. But they don't seem to realize the degree of deliberate placing of things. So it's as if the books took on themselves a Jamesian quality or an Austen quality. And Murdoch is an incredibly self-conscious, highly intelligent, articulate author who knows exactly what she's doing with every element that she chooses to take. It doesn't just happen, she puts it there. It's very deliberate artifice. So if she puts something into a book, she knows what she's doing with it and she knows why it's there. And I think that's not necessarily been seen clearly enough. Now, Peter did say right at the beginning that her first five novels were five different debuts. And I think this sixth one is yet another one in this much more traditional English Tea Party tradition. So you've got a lot of links with Austin, just to count a few. Miranda, when she falls out of the tree or jumps out of the tree and damages her ankle, is carried by Felix. And this recalls Willoughby carrying Marianne in Sense and Sensibility. Hugh, of course, her grandfather, gives Miranda a set of Jane, novel, Jane Austen novels. They don't interest her at all. That's just left aside. But there are other little things dropped into the texts. Randall attended on Emma and Lindsay in a manner which would not have disgraced the most solemn of Jane Austen's beau. And this is a, such an old fashioned way of behaving in the middle of the 20th century. And sometimes it's just in one little word that she makes these tiny connections. So this is a marvellous chapter that opens with the news that Randall Perronet was off, that he had left his wife and gone away, <clears throat> positively and definitely gone away with Lindsay Rimmer, was greeted with almost universal satisfaction. <laughs> that echoes the cadence and vocabulary of the opening of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. And I even began to wonder whether the choice of Fanny as the name for his wife, Fanny Perrinet, whose death begins the book, whose, whose funeral begins the book, as a woman without darkness, might derive from Mansfield Park, that's speculation, but it's an, an interesting choice of name. And then Henry James, again, is very, very much of an influence here. All these concerns of money and marriage, deception, corruption, the exploitation of the innocent come up. So you've got the golden bowl behind it, and much has been made of her using the Tintoretto image, which I know Lucy will go on to later with his using the pagoda image in that book. And that concerns a marriage and a moral maze and characters around in a very difficult situation together. In the wings of the dove, you've got another money, marriage and a moral maze. And she reflects this when she says, Anne and Felix, when Anne and Felix admit their love for each other, Murdoch says, Nothing now between them could ever be the same again. And that is a direct e echo of the last sentence of The Wings of a Dove when Kate Croy says to Merton Densher, we shall never be again as we were. And again, the portrait of a lady concerns marriage, money and a moral maze. And at the end of the book, Randall and Lindsay are in Rome like Isabel Archer and Gilbert Osmond. And there's something of Madame Merle behind Emma Sand's machinations, I think, and the same kind of ambiguous ending. And again, sometimes Murdoch just drops one little word into her text. And this recalls the ambassadors to me. 
Miranda says, Randall would go ahead of her, her envoy, her ambassador into the land of color and shape. And there's just that one word which she often uses to recall another author. Furthermore, you've got the turn of the screw. And there's a particular quotation where Lindsay, Ram Lindsay Rimmer, manipulating Randall Perrinick to her own advantage, insisting that he will get the money before she will capitulate to his desires. It's called the other side of a turning screw that's in the text. But also there's something, and I can't follow it through too much, but there's something about Penna Miranda recalling Miles and Flora, I think, these two young people mm, yes. running around this old house. And there's something slightly askew and adrift about them altogether. And then the figure in the carpet, which I know Anne Rowe has connected to Murdoch's novels quite a bit, a novella of 1986 of James's. It's not the figure in the carpet, but it's the pattern that comes up again and again. So Mildred talking to Felix about the repercussions of encouraging Hugh to sell the Tintoretto painting says the pattern does emerge pretty clearly. And then Murdoch emphasizes this with Felix's thought that the pattern which was emerging was the more alarming since it was also so attractive. And the final James text I want to just suggest is here in the background, and this has come up much more recently and I'll go on to that in a moment, is what Maisie knew, which is all about a little girl whose parents divorce and marry other people. So she's slightly in the position that Miranda's in of Randall going off with Lindsay and will Anne go off with Felix. They don't know, she doesn't know, but she's in that precarity of situation. And that might add more to the interpretation of Miranda, which is becoming much more nuanced in 21st century scholarship. But generally, Peter suggested that um, Murdoch uses a great deal of periphrasis in this book, which is true. It's a circumlocutory way of speaking, but I don't think it's an accident. And she was criticized for bad writing in this book or for very formal writing by early reviewers. But I don't think it's an accident at all. And there are sentences that just echo the Jamesian cadence altogether. For example, in her remarkable grasp of the situation, her expert reassurance of him, Randall felt again the curious sense of being bundled off. He was certainly being put through it. Or another sentence, Randall thinks about Lindsay. It was not either that Lindsay was below her destiny. She was, on the whole, magnificent. And these comma off phrases have a very Jamesian sort of intonation altogether. So looking going back and looking at the critical reception that it first received, there were some interesting titles for the reviews, Living Dolls, On the Murdoch Merry-Go-Round, Never Too Old to Be in Love, The Open Prison, <laughs> Some Artificial Flowers. Interestingly, one said, Miss Murdoch back on top form again. So that was a positive one. Tangled Lives, Complicated Lives, Roses Without Thorns, and Soap Opera and Sensibility. I really rather like that title. And they were very, very varied. One review by Malcolm Bradbury said that the opening falters, but the novel is rewarding. So he didn't like the opening scene at the graveside. But then Roses with Thorns by William Barrett praises the graveside scene, but then finds the book as a whole ambiguous and diffuse. They, really critics and reviewers did not know what to make of this book at the time. And there are some perceptive remarks, but there's a general confusion and a bafflement about what Murdoch is actually doing here, I think. So when you've got the early critics like Airspired, there's a tendency for them to sort of lay a grid over the novel, to have a lens through which they view it. So Byatt says very clearly, there are two themes, 
and she's bothered about the idea that there might be a better book somewhere behind it. She's quite critical of it. She says, the question which always strikes me about an unofficial rose is why is it not a better book than it is? And she's following <laughs> Angus Wilson here, who in an early review found a great deal to criticize. And both of them find things like it's something perfunctory, something lifeless, it's constantly irritating, there's self-indulgent snobbery, moments of bad writing, unconscious pastiche, it needs filling out, there are too many characters and too many loose ends. And they're very critical because they seem to have an idea of what she should have been doing rather than just being open to what she was actually trying to do in this book or what she was actually succeeding in doing. And A.S. Byatt's main idea is that there are two opposed groups of characters, one lot rapacious and violent, the other lot conventional and good. And she says these centre around the ideal of a review article that Murdoch had published in the Yale Review. One lot of the ordinary language men whose danger is that they may fall from love into convention and the other lot of the Sartre and totalitarian characters who may fall into neurosis. And I think this is where she's placing from the philosophy a grid over the fiction and it's trying to make it fit. And Murdoch is much, much more open-ended than this, much more fluid. And you get yourself into a, a, a bad kind of vice-like grip if you mm. try to read her through in this way. Sure. Peter Conradi, of course, is less um, in the grip of that. He's very clear that the theme of the saint and the artist lies at the heart of the book in the marriage of Anne and Randall Perrinet, which in fact Murdoch herself has corroborated in interview with Frank Commode. She sees it like that. He talks about the Jamesian qualities and the paraphrases and Jane Austen things, but he's very clear that freedom is the subject of the book and everything is, they're wanting to pin her down and I don't think you can pin Murdoch down ever. She's always doing something different than you expect, something unexpected, something outside the box. So Peter says there is much in an unofficial rose to hold the interest, the intricate story and the touching respect which the author never loses for the love affairs of what are sometimes elderly people. But he says, if it's less successful than some of the other books, it may be because it's very tautness of design with the closely interwoven destinies is for all its admirable economy somewhat chill. So the early critics of Murdoch's books were struggling with this one. They found it difficult to work out what was going on here and they tended to be fairly negative about it. Now, moving into the 21st century and the fantastic criticism that Anne Rose contributed and Priscilla Martin as well in their literary life. Anne and Priscilla look very much, and Lucy will come back to this at the in short, shortly, at the fictitious drawing of Tintoretto's Susanna's bathing. And they see this as being used to the same ends that Henry James had used the image of the pagoda in the Golden Bell as an explanatory metaphor in the form of an image. And Anne has looked back over the 50 years or so to, before she was writing her book looking at the fact that Murdoch wanted freedom to explore areas of human experience more difficult to confront within conventional realism. But critical dissatisfaction still occurred when her novels strayed too far outside that realist frame and tended to baffle the critics. And in this novel, she sees the exploration of unconventional attractions continuing. When the 13-year-old Miranda Perrinet falls for her mother's suitor, Felix Meacham, and plays her own sophisticated love game, and a lesbian relationship between Emma Sands and Lindsay Rimmer is hinted at. And she says that no authorial voice condemns Miranda's bizarre behaviour or unconventional relationships that were not then so widely acknowledged. They are presented merely as part of the panoply of human experience. But critics at that time largely failed to notice that Murdoch was experimenting radically 
with finding new ways of illustrating the interiorization of unhealthy masculine perceptions of women that cause self-serving and callous behavior towards them. And she thinks because of this, the novel was not one of Murdoch's most successful novels. And consequently, the novels of the mid 1960s became stylistically more curious, uh, more cautious. Um, I think what she did do was go in a completely direct, different direction in the next book and create something so gothic that was completely different. But it's interesting, they're looking at Murdoch, who declared herself not to be a feminist, how she was looking at warped masculine perceptions of femininity. And this didn't really come through to critics at that time. And they, they failed to perceive these, this new narrative technique in what she was doing. And Anne concludes that literary criticism didn't have a paradigm or the terminology for the kind of art Murdoch was producing at that time. And the accomplishment of what still are perceived as the less good novels remain in eclipse. And I think that's what we're talking about tonight is why has um, an unofficial rose become eclipse? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it actually shouldn't be really. And then before I say anything, well, maybe I won't have time to say very much about the novel. I want to say that I think criticism is moving even further now. And one person who's doing this is Pamela Osborne. Miranda was seen, and you, you could quote reams about Miranda, what kind of a scheming little awful thing she is and how dreadful she is. And she's <laughs> low throughout the book, everyone will slap her. And the reader has the same experience of really feeling they'd quite like to slap her as well. But Pamela Osborne's been working on bereavement and grief and unresolved grief and the kind of retro regressive behavior that it can cause in the case of both Miranda and indeed of Randall himself, her father. And I think she's finding something very different, which would make us look at Miranda as a damaged child, a psychologically damaged child, and cause us to read the book very, very differently and not just to see her as a scheming little witch. And it, that, that's a very interesting new perspective, which we're hoping that Pamela will um, end up producing as a book with us in the Iris Murder Today series. And of course, Lucy herself, who is working on ecology, has taken the focus of the book back to the title, An Unofficial Rose, which somehow got lost in decades of criticism. And then people went into the painting very deeply, but perhaps lost this rose. And there's no accident why Murdoch chose that as the title for her book or what she's doing with this. So I think I ought to shut up now and let Lucy say something about the painting and the rose and then maybe go back to other things later. I think that's a, a fascinating and fantastic overview of, uh, of, the, of the criticism and the sort of the, the application of uh, um, literary criticism to the novel itself. I, I, I was struck by what you said about this idea of the first five being kind of experiments in form and and, and usually with, with if I'm you know thinking about the early novels I mean I, I usually subscribe to that as well but I think you're quite right that actually this is such, such a different novel from the unicorn um, which succeeds it and also from a severed head which precedes it actually very different ways of, of, of working um, and perhaps that did throw the reviewers when they had to review very mm. different books each time there wasn't a kind of a and unlike perhaps you might argue with James and with Austin, where there is a kind of a, an obvious developmental path with, with Murdoch, perhaps it's a little bit more skewed until we get much further, further yes. in, maybe even to the 1970s. Yeah. Um, but we shall see. We shall we shall discuss this. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic uh, to consider the um, critical response, but also in, in relationship to how we're seeing it now. So, Lucy, I know you've been doing some work on... Um, horticulture and thinking about this this novel but and but also putting it in in putting um the uh fictitious painting by Tintoretto in, in relief as well I mean it's I mean it's quite obvious why the painting is so um 
so obvious to, to first-time readers and perhaps to critics as well, which is why you go for it, because, of course, Murdoch has been dealing with painting since Under the Net. And, of yes. course, and we know about the bell as well. Um, and yet here, perhaps the critics have got, you know, got it maybe slightly wrong or maybe have, have um, you know, promoted the painting at the expense of other um other objects, particularly roses. So, do you want? To, could you say a little bit about? Yes, that? I mean, I, I I think um the the wonderful thing about a Murdoch novel is that you you read it for a second, third, fourth, fifth time, and you see something different every time. So it's not, I would say, about right or wrong. It's just seeing the the multiplicity of layers. And I just wanted to um <clears throat> add something to first of all to what Francis has said. Um, and it's been so interesting to hear what you say about um, Jane Austen and Henry James Francis, because it struck me when I went to the beginning of the novel, that very first paragraph, um, you've sort of pulled out all those um, influences and, you know, the intention of what she's doing there. And it's, it's um, remarkable, I think, to also notice that in that first paragraph, she's also saying this is a novel of the 1960s. Um, it's a novel in a time without God. You know, we're at a funeral mm. and the, the vicar's intoning John eleven twenty five. I'm the resurrection and the life. And then you um, read Fanny Perronet was dead. That much her husband, Hugh Perronet, was certain of as he stood in the rain beside the grave, which was shortly to receive his wife's mortal remains. Further than that, Hugh's certainty did not reach the promise meant little to him that the priest had uttered. So, so you know, gone is all the, the 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 moral certainty and the rectitude of her literary ancestors, and we're embarking on a a novel of the nineteen sixties. With, and I think perhaps later on we might talk about um, Emma Sands and her sort of moral otherness. It's this sort of confusion of values and morals that's going on in this new new world of the 1960s but um i've sort of gone off my i've digressed but um so yeah so so the, going back to the tintoretto um <clears throat> so this is a an entirely invented precursor to the world-renowned susanna bathing by tintoretto which i'm i believe is on display at the kunsthistorisches museum in vienna at the moment i may not be correct about that but um, that, this Tintoretto has long been regarded as the central image of the novel. I think by Dippel, Heusel and Rowe have all um, remarked on it. And But what's different about the artwork in this novel, I think particularly as viewed by um, Hugh's son Randall, is that it's also a financial asset. Um, and its sale becomes Randall's obsession when he needs money to leave his wife, Anne. Um, so Anne Rowe has written that its representation in the novel is, as she puts it, the most sustained attempt at using a painting as a central extended metaphor for an erotic servitude that remains forever outside the reaches of the good. But she also remarks that this requires of Murdoch's reader a detailed knowledge of Tintoretto in general and Susanna Bathing in particular. And Rose remarked that this is what she feels makes the novel less than satisfactory. Um, 
And it's, I suppose it's true that the Tintoretto doesn't function as the Gainsborough does in the bell. It's not a source of revelation in the public space of the National Gallery as the Gainsborough is. Um, I mean, it's quite the opposite in a sense. It's, it's displayed in the private realm of Hughes' London flat. Um, the Tintoretto is, as Rose says, it, transformed by the ego of Hugh and Randall into its own private fantasy. So, th so the artwork, um, this uh, fictional study, is effectively fetishized. Um, what's important is who is looking at it and who owns it indeed. Um, so my feeling is that with the Tintoretto viewed as the central image of the novel, it's encouraged critics in the past 60 years, or perhaps we might say in the first 40 of those 60 years, because I think the novel has been somewhat neglected by critics for the last 20. So it, it's, it led critics to focus on the choices confronting two generations of men, father and son, that in turn have engendered objectifying discussions that point out dull wives on the one hand and, and more exciting mistresses on the other. It's focusing on the flaws and failings of, the, of, of Anne, effectively, and other women in the novel. Um, and um, and I'm not at all convinced that Murdoch intended her reader to sort of sit in judgment of her characters in the way that some of the critics perhaps um, have done uh, previously. Um, you know, it calls to mind the M&D example and the idea of perfection. You know, that rushes to your mind at this point. We must engage in the endless task, I think, and look again. So. Then that begs the question, well, what would happen if we look at Anne justly and lovingly? And this is where I think the other obvious, if not to my mind, the central mo motif ought to be, the one flagged on the title of the novel and mentioned also on that first paragraph of chapter one, the rose, specifically the dog rose, in the wild and unpossessed, so if Hughes Tintoretto functions outside the reaches of the good, as Roe has remarked, the wild dog rose of the novel's title, um, I think, pictures the good. It's, it's emblematic of the wild rose from which all roses have at one time been grafted, hybridized and cultivated. Yeah, and, and yet this unofficial rose seems to have gained relatively little attention thus far. And I think if you set this image at the center of the novel and you're foregrounding an aesthetic attitude to natural beauty, you, you might produce another sort of ethical perspective to the novel. Um, you know, if, if the concern was that the Tintoretto required a substantial amount of knowledge, you could argue that um, the rose, like other features of the natural world, doesn't require that level of intellectualizing if that's a word, um, but rather, you know, it draws us, um, at, you know, the natural world draws us outside of ourselves and in capturing our attention, uh, roses, tre beautiful trees, scenery, landscape can engender a feeling analogous to love. So a bit about the title, uh, her title comes from a Rupert Brooke poem, The Old Vicarage Granchester. So from the get-go, the scrambling rose, the unkempt beauty of the hedgerow is prioritized by Murdoch 
even over the manufactured rose cultivars that feature later in the novel in the rose, rose nursery. Brooke's poem rehearses his nostalgia for the English countryside. He composed it in a cafe in Berlin. In Berlin, the tulips bloom as they are told, his poem claims. He's really expressing a deep longing for the natural beauty of the English countryside, which for him is synonymous with freedom. So we've got Randall who's established a rose nursery, but it's run, it seems along with everything else by the long suffering Anne. She is much, much more than the faithful homemaker as one critic describes her. Hugh recognizes, and I'm quoting from the novel here, Hugh, um, her father-in-law recognizes that it was on Anne's science and Anne's business sense that the nursery depended now. So she's right here, she's been nursing her mother-in-law who's now died. She's, um, we'll come to it, but they've lost a child and she's now running the um, rose nursery. Um, while her husband is disenchanted with the business, drinking, off having affairs, but he, uh, he still remains proud of the cultivars he, he's created. And we hear a lot about um, the, his beautiful new um, uh, specimens that he names after various members of the family. So it's easy to be seduced by both his artistry and his ego, for sure. Um, it's Randall that aligns Anne with the dog rose. Um, and I'm going to quote again from the novel, if I may. It's what she is that does it, he tells his father. She's as messy and flabby and open as a bloody dog rose. For Randall, the dog rose represents the untamable mess of a contingent world. He needs form and a formal world, he tells his father. And as I've just mentioned, we mustn't forget in all of this that Anne and Randall are grieving for a dead son. And I think Murdoch goes to a lot of trouble to show the strain, the effect that has had on the marriage. We learn that Steve, their son, was as charming as his father, that makes them both lovable in a way, as Murdoch comments, that the worthy and deserving ones such as Anne are by a terrible justice unloved. So, you know, it's um, she's commenting, I guess, on, on you know, how seductive the charm of people is and when somebody is as busy kind of holding the whole thing together in the background you know they're not necessarily the people you tend to notice but Anne is doing everything and holding everything together while Randall's life effectively falls apart and I, I was very interested to hear you Francis quote that uh, quote Anne Rowe on um, the, the experimenting that Murdoch was doing with this novel you know, fight, you know, she was looking for new ways of illustrating the interiorization of unhealthy masculine perceptions of women. Um, and it, it was worth just repeating that again, because I something I've noticed reading this novel again, and I haven't noticed this before, is that I think Murdoch is portraying in Anne a victim of emotional abuse. Um, <clears throat> May I read the bit that I think gives us away? I mean, so the, so the pious reverend, uh, Donald Swan, is on his way to see Anne 
to effectively tell her that she needs to do more work to accommodate Randall and hold the marriage together. Anne is waiting to uh, receive uh, the Reverend Swan. And these few lines here just really moved me when I was reading it this time. The particular quality of Anne's long battle with Randall had seemed progressively to empty the certainties by which she lived. As if the real world were being quietly taken away, grain by grain, and stored in some place of which she had to knowledge, had no knowledge. This did not make her doubt the certainties. There would be for her no sudden switch of the light which would show a different scene, but there was a dreariness, a hollowness. She could not inhabit what she ought to be. And I think that, you know, this is a very powerful representation of the emotional suffering of a woman at the hands of a man in a domestic setting. And it's in, it crowded in with everything else going on in this novel. I think it's very easy to miss um, just that. And I think that's a very moving um, sequence. And the Reverend Swan is about to arrive and tell Anne how she can improve the situation. He says to her, you must enclose him in a net of goodness and loving kindness. You know, she's the one that's expected to do the work. You know, her, her father-in-law is also very unsympathetic towards Anne. Um, you know, right at the start, he's grateful for the rain that disguises his lack of tears as he stands over his uh, late wife's grave. And then it seems exasperated by the tears that um, Anne is producing, um, you know, she's been nursing Fanny Perronet. And of course, she hasn't so long ago lost her child, Steve. I think that's very interesting, Lucy. And it comes back to something I should have said earlier. And in fact, I should have made plain at the beginning, which I didn't for people who haven't read the book, that the whole thing hinges upon the sale of the Tintoretto painting. Randall will only be able to leave Anne and go off with his mistress, Lindsay, if his father, Hugh, agrees to sell that painting. So there's this, this is where the money and the marriage and the morality all coalesce. But another point about the perspective in this book, the narratorial perspective, is that there isn't a single narrator. There's no, it's not first person. And each chapter basically comes from one perspective or another. So you've got different, different minds. And you always have to think, whose mind are things being said through? So you see the Rose Garden through different people. And the first picture we get of it is the bleak lines of spiky rose bushes. It's not an attractive thing, but it's Hugh that's thinking this. And Hugh thinks again later, the gawky rows of dripping rose bushes. And that image is directly juxtaposed with his thought of his cosy London flat and the glowing Tintoretto, which seemed a shrine of refuge. So the rose, the rose and the painting are actually put in stark juxtaposition with each other. And it's Randall that thinks of women in terms of roses. So that marvellous quotation about Anne being as messy and flabby and open as a bloody dog rose is juxtaposed then with his thinking that Lindsay was shapely and complete, like a complex <laughs> rose. Her polychrome being fell into an authoritative pattern which proclaimed her free. So he's comparing types of roses. And then Miranda just gets this tiny little bit. Miranda, most of all, the heart of that mystery, the green central button of that rose. And again, you have to think about Miranda again. And there's a point when he's in the city and that he sees roses being sold. 
The long-stemmed, neatly rolled and elongated buds affected him sadly. They were more like city umbrellas than flowers. They were scarcely roses, these skinny, degenerate objects. He saw the hillside at Grey Hallock turning purple and lilac and pink with an abundance of plump formal centifolia and damask. So you've got all these ideas and forms of roses going around and being juxtaposed with each other, which I think is quite important. The other thing that I've been noticing is that Randall also doesn't seem to be able to cope with it out Anne and what she represents. So whilst we might think <clears throat> that it's Randall going off to find his freedom, there's something that keeps drawing him back and he's both irritated and obsessive and drinking heavily. He's unable to be in Anne's presence without irritation. He nevertheless followed her everywhere and could scarcely, while he was in the house at all, let her out of his sight. I also um, think it's very amusing that we, we, we look at, we, we're introduced to what Randall is trading Anne in for. Lindsay was not very appealing. Lindsay Rimmer was not in the ordinary sense a particularly accomplished or a particularly distinguished girl. She was to the very discerning nose, possibly even not a very nice girl. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're sort of, we're very much sort of, um, you know, on the inside track on that one, I think. But, you know, I, I think Randall really is unable to free himself. He's, he's a fantasist about his playwriting, which is what he'd rather, thinks he'd rather go off and do. He's a he. Uh, he's a fantasist about his relationship with Emma and Lindsay. Um, you know, he's he can recognise that he's been unfair to Anne, but he doesn't believe she could ever understand his needs. He pitied her and sees her as his destroyer at the same time. Do you think that we should see Emma as the enchanter figure of this title? For me, thinking about her as a kind of an archetype, she does share some similarities with Honor Klein from the previous novel. And I, I wonder if either of you two have picked that up as well. The visual description of her makes her sound like the elderly Colette with all the frizzy grey hair around her mm. and her, her sort of deliberate elderliness. You know, she, she takes on more age than she needs to have with her stick and everything. And she's sort of very insistent that she's this old writer. But she in terms of Randall and Lindsay is very controlling and Randall gets the feeling that he's actually been manipulated into doing what he does. And that's paralleled with Miranda, who almost seems like a sort of Emma Sands to come of the future, who manipulates her mother, Anne, and her mother, suitor Felix, into doing what they do. So there's this feeling of people in the background meddling with other people's lives. There's just one place, I think, where she does say something like pulling the strings mm. and it's this sort of early, early idea of this kind of puppet mastery that you see coming to fruition with somebody like Julius King, who in a fairly honorable defeat uses that image very deliberately and says, they're all puppets, I can just pull their strings and make them do what I want to do. And in this book, you see it happening without it being kind of quite as foreground as that. Would you agree, Miles? Yes, I think so. I think you can see elements from, as you say, the, the, the novels that are, that are to come. You can see them kind of in embryonic form here a little bit. Um, I'm also quite interested in this idea of um, location, especially between Grey Hallock and, and London. 
Um, of course, we're not we're not we're very much in in central London, aren't we? We're just um, we're just by the Natural History Museum, really. The the feeling that I get here is it's very two very different, both emotional but also um, moralistic spaces with with different rules and and re almost different rules and regulations. And Murdoch is giving us a, a kind of a different kind of vision of 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 Britain at this particular point in time. Or maybe I'm just being a little bit too sociological about. Well, I think it, I mean I think something she, there. I think I think she uses uh, Emma for that, and I think of Hugh as quite conventional. He's quite entitled. You know, um, he still thinks he can seduce Emma with his tintoretto. You know, come up, come up and see my etchings, but she won't come. <laughs> you know, he gets he gets quite angry actually, and he, it's the anger of a sort of male privilege. Mm. You know, you can't behave like this. If you weren't going to be kind to me, you shouldn't have let me see you. I must see you again. I insist. Uh, you know, he's effectively accusing an old woman of leading him on. Yeah. But she, but she stands her ground. Some kind of and, echo, and she, maybe, of Effingham and Hannah from the uh, from the next. Well, month yeah, one. and 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 she's saying, well, so the world has a strict obligation to be kind to Hugh Perronet, but I didn't particularly want to see you. It was your idea. I'm happy here. I have all I want. And interestingly, she says, I have my happy family. She's got Randall and Emma, and you know, and and Hugh cannot understand her use of the term family in this companion mm. in this context for his for her companions and of course and that is a sort of heralding a more modern you know diversity of moral value if you like yeah i think you're right though mars that there is a sort of juxtaposition of a londonized set of amorality and of anything goes and and different relationships against the much more traditional again english tea party austenian jamesian sort of countryside where everything is supposed to go on in this flow complete with the reverend yes yes you you've got these houses you've got seaton blaze and grey Halleck and the rectory it's very a jane austen village and yeah. they get yes. in the, the three really yes i mean you it's, it's an endlessly Sorry. rich book I, um, I was struck when i was looking at the early um reviews the connections that people made one person said that it was based on the uh, roman de la rose which i really would have to follow up and another one says it's in the tradition of the fairy queen and les liaisons dangereuses so there's a great <laughs> work to be done unpacking the possible you know connections behind the book which i haven't been able to follow up at the moment at all there I mean, is an there's enormous a veritable amount. library behind this book, isn't there? There is, yes, as with all Murdoch's books, actually. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's something that I want to follow up later, not in this podcast, because I haven't worked on it enough yet. But there's something about the secondary characters like Mildred and Felix, which is actually, they're kind of on the edge of the Randall, Anne, Lindsay, Emma muddle in the middle and the hue and what have you and yet they're absolutely central to the way that the plot actually works and what happens and i think they're central to the moral vision as well but i think we shouldn't forget also that it's as always again with murdoch as well as being quite a dark book in some ways about deep unhappiness and bereavement and infidelity and all the rest of it it's also incredibly funny and there's little internal jokes that she makes which only Murdoch readers would see like um a bottle of Lynch Gibbon Reedy Young 1955 had been almost finished which comes of course from the Lynch Gibbon um wine business in a, in a severed head the previous book and only if you've read that will you notice that but my favorite moment of all is a just a moment of pure Murdochian magic magic 
and psychological acuity, but it also, to me, recalls the voice of the young Jane Austen of the Juvenilia. There's this marvellous sentence at the beginning of the chapter where it's been discovered that Randall has gone. Anne had telephoned the rectory, and Douglas had set off immediately for Grey Hallock, followed by Claire, who paused only long enough to make ten phone calls. <laughs> 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 you can just see the great what vines sort of you know buzzing around the village. Oh, have you heard he's gone? Have you heard he's gone off with Lizzie River? It's marvellous. Yeah, it's a form of social um, comedy that um yes. again we get echoes of Austin there, I think. So so are we allowed to talk about the unofficial roses funny bits now then? I think so. I think and I think we also ought to mention um our Australian boy as well as Oh yes, yes. Or should we do that first? Which bit would you like to do? Whatever you'd like. Whatever you'd like. Um, well, let's talk about Australia, and then we can come back to the other funny bits. Yes. So, um, so we have Penn, who is the uh, is Randall's nephew, Miranda's cousin, and um, he's visiting from Australia, from Adelaide, to be precise. And 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 as uh, Francis explained, um, Margaret Hubbard was from Adelaide, and we think that's where the inspiration came from for his heritage, if you will. Um, but there's some, he's he's home, He's a homesick um, young boy, but he, I, the bit I want to pull out is this um, description of what he's missing. Um, he missed the big tawny air and the dry distances and the dust. He even missed the barbed wire and the corrugated iron and the kerosene tins. He missed more than he would have believed possible, the absence of the outback, the absence of the totally untamed beyond. And well, for me, this is a bit Skippy the Bush kangaroo, but we, as we understand it, well, we know actually that uh, as Gillian Dooley has um, researched, um, Murdoch had at this point never been to Australia. And in fact, probably her only um, you know, access to Australia at all was through uh, Margaret um, Hubbard. And um, this sort of bringing a character in from Australia like this, I mean, it provides for this novel, I think, a chance for the reader to see the understated English of, of Englishness, of the dysfunction mm. from an outsider. Yeah. Everything, you know, we're, we're as, as a a nation, we, we leave so much unsaid or we beat about the bush or we prevaricate and we're never quite sort of speak our minds. And I think this gives an opportunity for us to sort of understand what's going on like that. It's um, appalled by the silences that fall. Yes, the strained of Because he talks relations. about his big, noisy, argumentative family that would always have said things. And somehow the way these people just separate, go to their own rooms and don't say anything is alien to him. And it's, as you say, it's dysfunctional. It's not working. It's causing great problems. And Margaret Hubbard apparently loathed the wet, dripping English countryside. Yes. Like Murdoch used her distaste for it very well, much. Well, the, yes, well, there's this line. He, he disliked, Penn disliked. It's small it's picturesqueness, it's outrageous greenness, it's beastly wetness. You know, it's a sort of quite twee and um, seems superficially ordered, but there's absolute dysfunction going on underneath it all. 
So there is a wonderful essay by Gillian Dooley, Iris Murdoch and Australia, her life, her novels and her reputation. So what Gillian tells us is that Penn indeed comes from Adelaide, which is also where the dedicatee of the novel Margaret Hubbard originated. Uh, Murdoch had never been to Australia. She went in 1967, five years after the novel was published, for a five-week British Council tour. So she hadn't. So she hadn't been to Australia. She hadn't met her uh, a, a man who would become her, a long-term correspondent, the radical philosopher and environmentalist Brian Medlin. So she hadn't met him yet either. But um, and he was somebody actually that she met in Oxford, and they would write at length to each other about. Um, he was. Um, he was. Um, developing some land, I think. You know, uh, it may have been what we would now call rewilding. I'm not entirely sure about that, but he would write once he was back in Australia at length about what he was doing. And she would ask him questions about um, the Australian way of life, I suppose. And, and there's a wonderful Dooley, wonderful line in Dooley's essay um, where she says, Medlin attempted to complicate Murdoch's vision of Australia. Um, <laughs> um, when Murdoch was um, in Australia in 1961, she had written to Br Bridget Bo Brophy, Australia seems all right. There's just an awful lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was Murdoch using Australia for? So, um, she she admitted that Australia was often a solution when she'd already killed off too many characters. Um, Richard, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Hartley and her husband who emigrated at the end of the sea, the sea, for example. Um, Richard Todd asked if this is part of her was, was part of her process to get characters out of the world of the novel, and she demurs. Yes, I mean you don't want to kill them all, you know. You send them to Australia. Australia. Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a world when, of course, Australia was, in all, to all intents and purposes, a lot further away than it is now, I suppose. So we have to be, you know, um, yes, perceptions quite, are different, I it's suppose. Quite, it's, it's quite final, isn't it? Unless you're, uh, unless you're a character in Great Expectations, then you can come back. But um, it's, <laughs> unlikely, it's unlikely in, the, in the, one of Murdoch's books. <laughs> So as we draw towards the end of our podcast, thank you so much, both of you, for um, so much detail on, on the novel. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who have yet to read the novel and will be inspired, um, but also those who have read it and will see it anew through all the things that, um, that you've been bringing up and, and discussing. So, yeah, that's it's been wonderful. Francis, I know you haven't read it for 20 years. Um, Lucy, I know that you, obviously you gave a wonderful paper on this at the conference, um, medical conference this year. But thinking about the way in which it's been received, well, um, re received on publication, where do, and where do you see it fitting in now into Murdoch's canon? And have you reassessed it? And do you is it now sort of higher up in the league table, as it were, of um, of, of Murdoch's work? Very much so. I would reassess it completely. As I say, I want to dig behind a lot more. I think there is a vast amount of. Um, undiscovered stuff about this novel and what she was doing here. And I think it would repay a great deal more scholarly attention. And I, I think it's it's a beautiful book to read as well. It, it, it read very freshly to me again. And I, I think we need to, to revisit this one after 60 years and get more people looking at it and discussing it and reading it. 
Yes, to move um, beyond the uh, the usual corpus of um, seven or eight major major works, mm. perhaps. Yes, and, and you know, when you're considering the position of women, um, you know, if you're coming at it from a feminist perspective, and you know, that's something, Miles. I know you're very interested in. Yeah, I a think that's, bit. you yeah. know, I think that's, um, you know, I think that there's a lot um, to dig up in, on that in that regard as well. Um, I haven't done the funny bits, never mind. Oh, say your funny bits, Lucy. Go on, let's have an amusing piece from each of you. I've given you mine, the wonderful telephone calls. Ah, fine. Lucy, over to you. Well, I, I like, um, so we've got Hugh, um, I've got a few here, but I'll go for the one uh, about Hugh's fantasies of Emma don't match with reality. So you've got the ageing of, uh, of Emma and Hugh. He's he's seeing her again after 25 years. And she has a voluminous dress and a cane. Yes, yeah, so she, she, he says something to her. He says, you'll have to speak up, I'm afraid. And, and he tells her he's become deaf. So have I. And with the unfiltered honesty of the older person says, this is Emma talking to Hugh. I said you look just the same, but of course you don't. She offers him tea. He says, if it's no trouble. It is a trouble, she replies. And I just think she's just got that sort of the unfiltered honesty of the older person going on there. You know, and as a reunion, it's a precursor to Charles Araby and Hartley, I think, mm. isn't it? Where the reality betrays the fantasy and Murdoch leaves nothing to the imagination. It was as if her body and his sniffed each other like two old dogs while their owners looked on. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah, she said a wonderful, ter wonderful turn of phrase. I mean, we, we always talk about how good Murdoch is on set pieces of action, but I think, you know, yeah. there, there need, definitely needs to be a new uh, a new work on Murdoch and, uh, Murdoch and comedy, Murdoch and humour. I think it's uh, yes. certainly overdue. Um, no, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much to both of you for coming on once again and, uh, and, and sharing your expert knowledge and opinion on what is, I think, an underrated book, even though... A.S. Byatt may disagree. I think uh, critics um, from the uh, from the 21st century may have um, a rather different um, perspective. So my thanks to Dr. Francis White and to Lucy Alton for being with me. And my thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>